Harris is a singer-songwriter, activist, and educator who's been active for over 40 years. Over the course of his career, he's recorded an impressive amount of music, won awards for his contributions to civil rights education, been featured on CNN, and is the co-president of the Living Legacy Project. He has a new album out called On Solid Ground that is a thoughtful and soulful reflection on our current world. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So uh, I wanted to start off talking about the recording of the record. Um, where'd you record it? Who played on it? And, and that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, I have been using a studio uh, just uh, outside of Philadelphia uh, in Norristown, Morningstar Studio. Um, I did Ready to Go, uh, my first solo there um, in 2018. Um, a friend of mine, well, Greg Greenway, who uh, has been uh, my co-producer and, and also played and sang on this record, uh, had done a couple of CDs there and just said it was a great environment to work in. And he was so right. Um, I hadn't realized that, you know, I lived in Philadelphia for years uh, and years ago. I grew up there. And I had done some work with them, uh, with the Morningstar folks earlier, but I hadn't forgot. I'd forgotten the studio. But uh, Glenn Barrett, the guy who owns it, and um, Dave Schonauer, who's the, the engineer that I worked with, just amazing. Great atmosphere. Really technically uh, amazing. And uh, Dave, the um, engineer is also a musician. Uh, I think a graduate of Berkeley or whatever. And so it's. Uh, I decided to go back there. Um, of course, we had to work carefully with the COVID protocols. Um, most of the musicians who came in uh, came live. We did a couple of remote things uh, just because people were compromised and really couldn't uh, come. But uh, it gave me access to the same musicians, uh, many of the same musicians I used on Ready to Go, and I. We had a comfort level, which was really key <laughs> with the anxiety of kind of working together in, in you know, the protocols. Um, so Greg was was part of it. Um, and then I brought in the rhythm section that I'd used, uh, a really uh, great bass player, uh, Chico Huff, uh, who just seems to get my music, uh, the nuance of, of just the lyric and, and sort of where I'm going vision-wise musically. Uh, and then Matt, Matt Scarano, uh, the drummer, um, he, we call him the scientist because uh, he's uh, he's this big, tall guy. I love to watch him play because he's like arms and legs going all over the place. But he's so tasty, you know. Um, and, and then some of the other players, Pat Wichter, um, you know, who was also with Greg in, in Brother Son years ago, um, did some of the slide. And, uh, and guitar work. Um, and I called up an old friend um, that I hadn't talked to in about three, four years, uh, John Placania. And, uh, you know, John's been all around the world with, you know, Van Morrison and all these people. But um, John said, you know, he couldn't come, but he would, he would work remotely. So that's how I got him on uh, Standing in Freedom's name. Uh, and then my friend Colleen Katow, who just turned out to be the perfect female voice. <laughs> Um, uh, I just, I've done a lot of work with her and also Tom Prasado Rao, who also ended up on, um, uh, um, the song, uh, sing out, rise, march on. Um, so, you know, basically it was just calling up a few close friends and, and, and folks that I'd worked with Matt Murphy, uh, Mark Murphy, who, um, played bass on about four of the cuts. Um, I've just had a long relationship. He's been on several of my albums over the years with Kim and Reggie Harris. Um, and I, he plays a really great upright. So um, he came in and, and particularly on songs like Hello in there, um, um, you know, Mark has such a great knowledge of uh, the folk community and folk recordings. 
So um, the fact that in Hold On there, he quoted um, the original baseline, uh, I would have never thought of that. You know, and that's the thing I really loved about working with all of the family, as it were, because uh, they they just all came with their A game. They came with no attitude. Um, the other addition, I hadn't worked with uh, the keyboard player um, whose name is <laughs> just disappeared out of my head <laughs> um, from Baltimore, uh, Eric Bird, uh, who's a wonderful jazz uh, player. And uh, I, when I decided I was going to cover the Beatles tune, uh, All You Need Is Love, and the way that I heard it, I knew that Eric would really bring something special to it. And uh, and that he did. So, uh, you know, it, it was just uh, it was a, a, a really wonderful, um, comforting, inspiring series of sessions. Uh, we were, I think, in one one sense, we were really able in the studio to sort of lift ourselves out of all the mayhem that was surrounding us and uh, and really pull the attention into the music. And then they just translated uh, everything you know, I I love working with all of them because it's uh, it's really a matter of I have to suggest very little. Um, you know, they just really uh, listen carefully and respond uh, to what I'm doing uh, with just so so much acuity. It's it's just uh, every day in the studio, with the exception of one day where I was just sick as a dog, and um, uh, really struggled through getting some guitar tracks down. Every other day was just a, a, a joy and a delight. That's great. Well, I, I wanted to talk about your um, your activism and, and, and work over the years. Um, you grew up in Philly, like you mentioned before, and um, uh, you've just done so much. And I was wondering if you could just uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, your work in, um, in in the world of like uh, politics and social justice and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, you know, because I tell people I'm probably the most reluctant activist you'll meet. <laughs> Um, I grew up in a family that was not particularly uh, politically aware. I uh, went to a church that, you know, was evangelical and, and really not involved in any of the stuff that was going on in, you know, some of the other churches. Uh, Fifteen blocks away, I had Reverend Leon Sullivan, who many people would know because of the Sullivan Principles and the divestiture of, of South Africa. Uh, they were launching protests around Philadelphia and, and, and really involved with Dr. King and with a lot of the civil rights stuff that was going on. I knew none of that growing up. Um, we were just trying to get people saved. <laughs> and um, But in high school, uh, in my sophomore year, um, there was a sit-in, and of course it was 1968, so there was a lot of stuff happening in Philadelphia, and that was my wake-up call, really. Um, the sit-in and the subsequent riot that happened in my high school uh, kind of woke me up to the fact that, um, I mean, it wasn't as if I wasn't watching TV and, you know, I knew about Dr. King and, uh, and Malcolm X was on TV, but it wasn't, it hadn't made a personal connection to how that might affect my life. But that riot in high school and watching uh, kids battling it out and then going home and looking at the news and getting a sense that all around Philadelphia and then, of course, in Detroit and in Oakland and all around, uh, these things were happening. Um, and so that continued to finally, I, you know, for my first year of college, I went to Atlanta and Atlanta had just desegregated. And here this Northern kid drops in and um, 
just feeling the tension and, and being responded to as a northerner in the South uh, just was the further wake-up call. So once I came back and started playing guitar and getting involved in, in you know, the folk community, um, I guess I was sort of ripe for putting those experiences growing up. Um, we used to take trips uh, to visit relatives in the South, and we'd have those experiences of being in a uh, you know, gas station and, you know, sitting in the car and watching car after car after car of white occupants get served. And my, um, we wouldn't go to the beach except for on Thursday. And when we asked, they would say, well, that's our special day. Uh, and all that, you know, when you're a kid, all that stuff goes inside of you and you, you register those, you know, microaggressions and you register what it is you see. Um, of course, I did see the March on Washington on TV. All of that started to really come due when I became a musician. And then, of course, I met people like Pete Seeger and Richie Havens and uh, Tom Paxton and uh, Bernice Johnson Reagan. And uh, at the time, traveling around America, I was also beginning to, on college campuses and in coffee houses, beginning to experience what life was like being a black musician on the road. Certainly it wasn't, you know, like it was for, you know, Josh White or any of those folks, you know, Odetta. And I, I can't imagine the stuff that they, they went through as, you know, solo black artists traveling around. But, you know, things were happening. And um, slowly but surely, it began to infiltrate my writing. And then I got involved with a group called the People's Music Network for Songs of Freedom and Struggle. Uh, that's pretty much where I met Pete Seeger. And... Um, after that, it was tuning back into the history um, and getting involved with the Kennedy Center, which caused me to uh, do research into things that I could use as educational base. Kim and I started with the Underground Railroad, uh, moved on to the Civil Rights Movement, and then I had the opportunity to also meet some of the original freedom singers like Cordell Reagan and Chuck Neblett. Um, and, and their stories um, also then began to uh, change the way I, I saw my role in writing. You know, I, I stopped writing as many love songs, although I do have, you know, two on the new record. Um, but, you know, I also saw James Baldwin in a lecture on the college circuit. And um, the night that I saw him, he talked about the role of the artist being one who sees the society in which you are. And he said, your responsibility as an artist is to take what you see into your filter and then translate that so other people who may not have your vision will see what you see. And I remember him saying, uh, sometimes you need to show people things that they don't want to see, and they're not going to love you for it. But that's your job. And it would take me, I would say, 10, 15 years to take that night into myself and and begin to really commit myself to doing what he said. But I knew that very night that something had changed. Wow. That's interesting. I, as a person who was there in, in 68 when, you know, the, the, the country was in turmoil and obviously you're around mm -hmm. now, um, I'm interested. I, I'm, I was born in 78, so, you know, missed all that stuff uh, by quite a ways. But mm -hmm. I'm interested in, in your perspective on um, the similarities and differences between those two times. Yeah, well, I think, you know, certainly certainly the level of tension in the nation, uh, I would say, is, is very similar. Um, I think the major difference is that, you know, we have social media 
and that more can be known. You know, as I said, you know, when I was grow- growing up in Philadelphia, there was all kinds of stuff going on. But if you weren't in a certain community, I mean, it wasn't as if the news stations were going to cover everything, um, particularly around African Americans or Hispanic Americans. Uh, so you could be right across town and not know something was going on, and, and that certainly is not true now. Um, and I think that's one of the great benefits. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things about social media that also, you know, the spreading of misinformation and, you know, the clustering of of hate groups and, and how easy it makes to, you know, tie in people who uh, mean no good to the world, um, how it helps them to recruit. But on the same level, um, we can also recruit. We can also reach people. Uh, with messages of of freedom and justice, um, and we can know more about what's happening. Um, I'm looking at the particularly around the issues that young people have embraced, uh, and looking at what happened in you know 2020 with the voting rights issue. Uh, as a uh, co-president with Living Legacy, we launched uh, f- uh, five. Uh, podcasts on voting rights and went back and got some of the speakers like Ellie Ladner um, and uh, just some of the original uh, uh, folks who were working in, uh, who was a uh, Flonzie Brown Wright, who was uh, the first African-American woman elected to office in Mississippi and uh, became a, a devotee and a, a follower of uh, Medgar Evers and Dr. King. So, you know, we can put things in front of people. Um, to sort of counter the misinformation. But I think uh, it's an amazing thing, I guess, in 2020, as I watched white people who have been completely insulated from the history, you know, back before America was America, of the treatment of people of color, the treatment of Native Americans, um, become aware that this, myth that they've been taught as history is untrue. Um, So I think that opposed to 1968 when anyone who was protesting was sort of uh, just classed as an angry, you know, hater of America. We can counter that message uh, more more carefully and more critically these days. Um, But, and I think, you know, we have to also celebrate the fact that, you know, we have more access to making some change, uh, more than we did then, uh, both uh, politically and also, I think, emotionally, uh, making the argument uh, across the board. And, and people around the world also have, you know, I have friends in Germany and, and Australia and England who tapped into what was happening uh, last year and made responses or asked me to come on and do concerts for groups of, you know, I did one concert for folks in Germany, Austria, and Belgium one day, um, and just brought them up to speed on what was happening, you know, both in my community and in, in other communities. Um, so I think we, it's, it's a wonderful, amazing opportunity, but it's a little frightening. <laughs> um, you know, as an African-American traveling around in the country right now, I probably have never felt less safe. And um, and that's even, you know, compared to when I really started touring, like in 1980, 81, um, uh, the, the level of hatred, you know, stoked primarily by the last administration, but certainly not all contained there, has just increased the level of animosity. And um, I think we just see it all around us. 
And I, I don't know. I think in one sense, um, that danger um, is commensurate at least with what was happening. Um, and, you know, I know I pay attention to it right down to what I wear in public. And, um, and that's North and South. So I wanted to talk about a, a couple of the songs um, that I really liked on the record. Um, on Solid Ground, mm-hmm. the, the title track, uh, I thought it was a, a beautiful song. I was wondering if you could uh, share where that one came from. Well, I tell you, uh, I got home on March the 8th. Um, I did a, a date in Buffalo, and uh, after they canceled the second half of it, I drove home. And, and, of course, three weeks of sitting in my living room watching things come apart. And um, I got online, started doing a couple of online concerts, and I was just really struck by the, the level of uh, fear and anxiety and that I saw in the eyes of the people on you know various platforms and I just felt like, you know, in, in the work that I do, there's always a, a need to try to be reassuring to people uh, without, you know, uh, painting a false picture. Um, but myself, I just, sitting at home, I just picked up the guitar. I started singing some of those spirituals, wade in the water and ain't going to let nobody turn me around. And I think I was just thinking about the resilience of all those those folks, you know, the Harriet Tubmans and Frederick Douglass, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer you know, Ella Baker, the message that they gave and, and all those folks that I grew up with in my neighborhood was that, yeah, we're, we're in a tough spot. We're in a mess. Uh, you know, there's violence all around us, but we know we can be resilient if we stick together. And that was what I was thinking when the phrase, uh, first phrase came to me, we will not rest until the storm is over. Uh, I just wanted to get people mobilized and I wanted to reassure them that they weren't alone. Um, which, you know, was a little more difficult to do. Uh, but, you know, since we had Zoom and we had StreamYard and all these other platforms, I started doing as many concerts as I could. And it was after one of those concerts that I uh, I just sat down and the chorus just kind of flowed out of me. And I, the verses, I just wanted to hit all of the basic points, the fact that, you know, the journey is long, uh, but we have examples. We have uh, role models uh, that have provided us with a really great roadmap for negotiating difficult times. And I wanted to talk about the fact that, you know, yeah, there's violence surrounding us, but, you know, again, we, um, we have community if we choose to open ourselves to it. Um, and, you know, the song is written in the frame of the spirituals, um, you know, easy, accessible memory, melody. I really wanted to make sure it was something that people could sing easily. And the first time I did it was actually for a, program that I've been part of uh, that started in the pandemic called The Daily Antidote that was started uh, pretty much uh, the week, um, I think the week of uh, after the the uh, pandemic started, after things started shutting down, uh, and a woman named Joe Rassi and the Washington Rebels um, just started having a half-hour program where we just sang one song. She had a song leader come on, and she asked me to come on. And, um, and you just lead a song and people from all across the country, all around the world, come on just for half an hour every day at noon. And, uh, and so I introduced that song there and people just sang it and sang it and sang it. And I thought, Oh, okay, we're here we go. <laughs> uh, cause you know, this, this is why I love using the spirituals, um, because there's songs that help us to acknowledge the truth of where we are, you know, what our fears are, what, uh, what's facing us. Uh, that's what people did in that time of slavery. They 
they were able to name the the issues. But then once having done that, you can't live there. Uh, so the songs encourage you to move, um, to do something to lift yourself out of that. And then, you know, just the whole idea that you're singing into a future that might be uncertain, but it won't be certain unless you act. So, you know, that's really, that's the mission of the song. And I'm proud to say now that uh, folks are singing it all over the place. Uh, I just got a thing in the mail from somebody, a friend of mine, Kathy Roman in Cincinnati, and she has a choir and uh, they just did an arrangement of it and they're going to debut that arrangement in uh, in September. So oh, wow. It's spreading. That's great. Yeah, I was I was listening to it with my wife and she works for a Methodist church and she that was her first thought. She said, That's a, that'd be a, a beautiful song to sing at church. I love that one. I love it. <laughs> well, I have to send her the arrangement. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it has it's it's that total that, that gospel you know uh, structure, and it's easy to remember, mm-hmm. and it's 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 beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good stuff. Well, it's a good segue to uh, to Pete Seeger, all the stuff you were just talking about, and, and you were um, you knew him and, and played with him and stuff, and wrote a song called uh, "High Over the Hudson" uh, in in honor of him. And um, I I think it's so interesting because it seems to me that his vibe is kind of missing in festivals where he would gather people mm-hmm. together and give people a, a thing to sing about. And there would be this unity kind of happening almost like a church service, yeah. but almost like a secular church service. And yeah. um, I was yeah. just wondering if you could talk a little bit about Pete Seeger and his influence on you and that song a little bit. Well, yeah, you know, Pete, uh, Pete was a wonderful mentor. He was a wonderful friend. Um, and I met him, he was uh, doing a concert in Philly and, and we were asked to be on the concert and, you know, he was just so accessible and, um, you know, he didn't hold himself in a whole icon, you know, look at me thing. You know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, he was all about connection. He was all about using songs to get people involved, get people singing, get people activated. Um, and really I have to give him credit for reconnecting me to my own legacy of growing up in the black church. And of those, um, those um, Sundays where, you know, we would just gather and sing for hours. And uh, and the old folks, I didn't know it then, but, you know, they were giving us song not only as part of the community, but also to just kind of help us to have something to deal with, the as I say, the troubles of the world. Uh, and, and Pete was great about that, too. He was also just really amazing. I mean, he'd call up and, and say, you know, I, I got a concert coming up. Um, we'd love to have you on. And uh, so pushing all of us out there and giving us a chance to kind of see how it's done. Um, I love the fact that he very seldom ever like gave advice or anything. Uh, he just really exemplified the mentor who um, <clears throat> does what he does. It gives you the opportunity to participate and to find your level. Um, so the work with Clearwater and, 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 you know, just the work on, you know, civil and human rights, um, you know, I, he was, he was one of the few white faces, particularly on a, 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 a famous person level who was willing to go into the South, not as an icon to go there and, you know, demonstrate I'm pizza here and I'm coming here to help you people. He went there and he learned, you know, he went there and he got into the community and offered, uh, offered his ability to uh, bring attention to things uh, that, you know, uh, most of the media or whatever, you know, Pete Seeger was in the South 
and they might think that was an interesting story. But, you know, he was holding up and lifting up all of those folks who were already there working, you know, the Ella Bakers and, you know, and the Fannie Lou Hamers. And um, he he was selfless in the way that um, uh, he served the song. And that's what he got me back in touch with was that um, not to use the song as a vehicle to focus people on me, but to use song to give people permission to find their own level in the story. So I'm I'm very grateful to he and also to his wife, Toshi, who, um, as I always say, without Toshi figure, there probably would have been no Pete. (laughs) Um, She was a rock and, um, and also an amazing leader in her own right, which is why I wanted to drop her into the song as well. And, you know, the day after he died, I um, just wanted to pay tribute to him. And I went into a second grade classroom. A friend of mine was teaching and uh, I was talking to the kids. Uh, Kim and I went in and, you know, we were talking to the kids about, about Pete and his work and singing songs with the kids. And one of the second grade uh, girls asked where he lived. And I said, well, he lived on this this ridge, on this hill. Um, he built a house on the hill, and, and uh, he lived there with his family. Uh, he lived high over the Hudson River that he loves. And as soon as I said that phrase, I asked the teacher to give me a piece of paper because I just looked down high over the Hudson. And, <laughs> um, and I, what I saw was him on one more sail up the up the river after, you know, he, he died just uh, passing up the river, looking at all the places that he loved to sail, and uh, and sending us a message that um, the work was now ours, and that we needed to embrace the mission. So uh, it's it's a song I'm really really proud of, um, both because it uh, it was a really great creative exercise to to write it, but it also was really steeped in a lot of history of of that river, which because of his efforts and the efforts of, you know, thousands of people in Clearwater and, and other organizations, that river is now clean and uh, showing us that it can be done. Touring is uh, kind of slowly opening back up and people are kind of getting back in there in different ways and whatnot. Uh, what are your plans for uh, the rest of the year as far as uh, shows and, and playing live music and all that? Mm-hmm. Well, I just did a concert uh, here in Chicago uh, on Saturday night for WFMT. And, um, I'm slowly opening myself. I'm actually next Saturday. I'm doing a concert um, for the Caramore Center uh, in New York. So slowly but surely, I'm uh, opening up mostly to outdoor, you know, uh, venues this summer. Uh, but I've taken some dates uh, in the fall that are indoors. Um, it's an interesting time. <laughs> um, I think you know, uh, with the spike in in cases coming. Uh, one can't help but be, you know, cautious and, and think, uh, and, and, you know, just trying to, you know, follow. I am vaccinated, so that's helpful, but, um, you know, you just, uh, you just don't know, you know, we're kind of in an uncertain time, but I, I think it's really important that we, we gather again. You know, I know that people are really fatigued. Uh, people are, are uh, at a point where they just can't do one more Zoom program. <laughs> um so I, I think as we go through this time, it's it's really important, I think, to begin to build, rebuild um, the sense of community. And there's nothing, nothing like song to do that. 
Well, that's all the questions I uh, had planned for you. Yeah, I appreciate you um, uh, chatting with me this morning. Hey, it's a pleasure. Cool. Well, I'll let you go. I, I appreciate you uh, phoning in again. Thanks again for that. Hey, it's great talking to you, Will. Take care. Thanks, Reggie, for chatting with me about this album. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe to my show. Leave a comment and a rating. Until next time, everybody. Have a good one.